It will be a memory that I cherish for quite some time. But it will stand by me well as I go to different sanghas and are in different places. This is always one of the things to navigate. You never know um, how it's going to be. So we'll do the best we can. And we thought we'd have a little bit of a different tenor tonight. Um, you know, um, we've been fortunate both in energy and time to be able to see all of you three times. You know, so I think that speaks to some degree to the um, non-proliferation of questions. So oftentimes on a retreat there's many, many questions. And I think by supporting you in the way that we've done these questions, can you all still hear? No? Just up a titch, titch? Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Thank you. Um, by the degree of, of, of contact, it allow you to really settle into your practices and to look for some of the answers through the experiences that you were having. So um, we'll do our best to engage. It's a little, it's different engaging with questions when they're written down on a piece of paper um, as opposed to the raised hand or whatever. Um, but we'll do the best we can. So uh, this this first question, I'm going to read both of them because they're somewhat related in some ways. So somebody writes, one person writes, um, we've all here agreed on retreat to abide by a set of teachings and agreements about how to live at peace. I'm curious about how to continue with this practice when most people I encounter on a day-to-day -day basis are not living with the same agreement, agreements. I am tempted to put a sign around my neck that says, take it easy, I'm trying to be a Buddhist. <laughs> I guess my question is, do we explain our practice to those around us or just role model and embody and hope that it works out? And in, the, in a related way, retreat practice feels so internal in contrast to daily life that is so relational. What have you, us, found most helpful for bringing practice to the relational realm of life, especially with regard to all these relationships with non-practitioners? Boy, we're blaming the non-practitioners on a lot, those poor people. Um, so for me, you know, and, and we may bounce back and forth um, um, against each other, Jill and I, but for me, one of, the, one of the things is to really have no separation between my life in the world and the practice and the Dharma. Really, I live my life through the Dharma. So it doesn't necessarily look like a monastic. I'm not um, engaged in monastic living, which is a different form of practice, a different way of engaging the Dharma. Um, but in my life, and let me see, in my, in my personal life, like my family um, and my close circle of friends, um, the majority of people are not Buddhist, are not Dharma, don't, they just know I'm always on the road and I'm pretty chilled out and, you know, like that. But they don't practice. Um, my husband's practiced enough that he does know 
what I do, which is why he supports me at the level that he supports me at, which is huge. Um, but for me, again, it's not making the distinction. Even my practice as a therapist is held within the container of the Dharma. Another thing that's really useful is um, non-judgment. Like there's a tone that those who are different or aren't practicing in the way that we practice should be, or it would be easier if they were, or you know whatever the particular conversation is that you might have about that. But really there is a, a relaxing and an opening to just as we work and practice on allowing our experience to be as it is, without trying to change it, without being um, uh, attached to it in a particular way, without aversion to it. It's the same with relationships. Now that doesn't mean that over the course of time, I've been practicing for about 25 years or so, uh, maybe a little bit more, that over the course of the time that I haven't become more um, intentional and particular about who is in my life as a two or three circles out, right? Um, and some people, there's a few people that would fall into that category who I don't have a choice, they're family, so needed to work out a way to be with each other. And so what that may mean is that we keep the conversation up here. How you doing? What's the latest movie you saw? What book you reading? You know, I'm not going to get it. Somebody that has a very different way of perceiving the world and engaging the world, I'm not going to get into a conversation about politics with them. So using your discernment in relationship to who, what, where, when you're offering yourself up to and how much. And there are some relationships that will maybe have been in the closer realm of relationship for you that move to a more ancillary realm. Um, and then sometimes it's necessary if it's really oppositional or really antagonistic to what you're up to and what you're trying to do and what you're trying to manifest. There are times where one has to make a decision to leave a relationship alone. You know, that's sometimes the hard part, that there may be relationships that we created or that we are engaged with that um, served a particular purpose at one time, was a good relationship at one time. But as we change and as we become more um, free from all of the things that we've been working to become free, relationships fall by the wayside. But I can tell you that the easy thing about that or, or I don't know about easy, but the flowing thing about that is oftentimes when relationships need to shift and recede more into the background as opposed to the foreground, it happens pretty organically and easily. It's not like you have to take a stand like we can't be in relationship anymore or this won't work. It kind of happens of its own natural accord. Anything you Sure. Mm -hmm. Anything you would add? Maybe just the piece about being a role model rather than taking on a label. Now that famous uh, quote, a woman who went back to visit her parents and she said, my parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist and love me when I'm a Buddha. So when we're sort of caught in the ideology or trying to convince or saying any kind of superiority or sense of otherness, People sense that, 
But if they feel that they're just met exactly as they are, appreciate as well. So I personally tend not to call myself a Buddhist for that reason, because who knows what that means to the other person, to just allow for that organic, natural relationship. So I'm getting the hand signals. How's that? Is that too much now? Um, could you speak? Okay, so how is this? This. Sorry? Good? Okay. I'm finished, thank you. <laughs> I don't know if I started, but I'm definitely finished. There's a couple of questions about the hindrances. Uh, one specifically about doubt and how is doubt a hindrance? So the person says, doubt seems to be helpful. Confusion is at times natural. For example, not knowing how to make a big life change or decision that may include doubt, whether to move, when, which city is best and so on. So what is the negative aspect of hindrance and how do I recognize good versus bad doubt, natural versus unhelpful confusion? So when we talk about doubt specifically as a hindrance in relation to our meditation practice, it's usually labeled as skeptical doubt. To distinguish it from, I think, what the person was alluding to, that there is a skillful aspect to questioning, and that's investigation. So investigating is very definitely approved of in this tradition. The Buddha specifically said we shouldn't take on any practice until we've tried it in the context of our own lives and discovered that it does lead to ease, happiness, peace, and freedom. And if it doesn't, then we shouldn't continue with it. So there is a healthy aspect to this questioning, asking, exploring. The downside of it, what makes it a hindrance, is when we get caught in a kind of compulsive questioning, second-guessing, undermining every decision we try to make. Really, it's a shading over into anxiety, to restlessness and worry. So one of my friends talks about this as paralysis by analysis. Should I do this? Should I do that? I don't know. Maybe we just spin around. It's not onward leading in quotation marks. Whereas genuine questioning, or you could say not knowing, is an aspect of beginner's mind, which is really highly valued in the Zen tradition. So the famous quote, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's few. So what we're aiming for is an open, curious, interested approach to what we're doing. And energetically in the body, at least for me, this kind of uh, thing feels spacious and alive, whereas doubt as a hindrance feels agitating, it's energy draining, it's numbing. So I use the body as a resource to uh, get a clear sense of whether something is genuine questioning and investigation or whether it's just I'm in the proliferation of doubt.
Yeah, the only other piece that I would add to that was would be that when we are in, find ourselves in the places where we're needing to make choices or um, uh, we become aware that doubt is operating, you know, I keep going back to remembering two things. One, we have a nervous system. And there are many aspects or components to doubt which um, were safety measures for being safe at one time, right? And so to actually use this discernment that uh, Jill just finished speaking to, um, to what's happening with the nervous system, which is why it's really, really important to look and to see how these various states are manifesting in the body. The bo you know, this is um, one of the big trauma um, taglines now is the body doesn't lie. Well, it doesn't it will inform you of what's happening. And so to develop the capacity to more and more trust that, and by clearing out through the practice many of the ego-identified components of being, you'll get more and more capacity, more and more clarity about hearing the body and understanding what's being um, offered to you in terms of information. I'm going, I'm getting ready going. Okay. So just in relation to trauma, seeing as we're moving in that direction, there was a question, does, quote, lizard brain reactivity lessen with practice and time as well? Example, quickened heart rate in times of a threat. So it's talking about that basic fight, flight, freeze mechanism that's almost hardwired in us, as it says, the reptile level of the brain before the, I forget the term, higher, what's the higher functioning of the brain? Cognitive, mm. in the development of the brain is the primitive lizard part, and then the neocortex is somewhere. Oh. Anyway, you science people know that. What we're looking at is that basic fight, flight, freeze response can't necessarily be stopped or got rid of, but how far we move down that chain of cognition into proliferation is where we do have a choice. So when I read this uh, question, I thought of an experience I had a few years ago now when I was uh, volunteering in a prison in Massachusetts, and we invited a Zen monk to come and speak to the guys to share his life story. And this Zen monk had been a combat Vietnam vet. He'd been a machine gunner, a helicopter machine gunner. So you can maybe even just begin to imagine the kind of um, PTSD life challenges he had when he got back. Major drug addiction, suicide, etc., etc. But short story, he managed to turn his life around through becoming uh, in contact with the Dharma, training as a Zen monk. So he was sharing the story with the men, and we were in a room in the prison, and it had been a, a 19th century mental asylum, so it was an old building. The windows were broken, and they taped plastic sheeting over these windows, and the sheeting was torn. And this was a pretty windy day, so the monk was, you know, two-thirds of the way into telling his story, and suddenly the wind just rattled this window, and <laughs> like that. 
and you just he was telling the story and you saw him freeze he stopped mid-sentence his whole body became static and then he said I'm hearing a sound I'm breathing I'm sitting in a room I'm sitting with some man and Jill we're in a prison and I'm safe and as I was saying and then he just carried on with his story and at the end of that um, session one of the men asked him what he'd been experiencing and he said well it was a PTSD response and you know for years I tried to stop that happening tried to get rid of it struggled with it fought with it did everything I could for that not to happen and then I gave up and I realized I can't stop that happening but I can change my relationship to it mm -hmm. and now it just happens and it's okay and he had demonstrated that life for the men and it was so helpful to see that honesty that vulnerability that courage so perhaps that's a indication that yes we might have these responses, but they don't have to be debilitating. They don't have to hijack us. Yeah, and I think that's applicable. You know, that's uh, on the continuum. That's on the, the, the intense side of the continuum. But really, it's we're learning to do that with everything, with those thoughts that ruminate around our minds, with those emotions that perpetually run themselves through us, um, that, that we're learning to manage and transform these states of being that we're all conditioned in one way or another, at some time or another. It's not, the, the, the practice and the, um, the effort is not towards getting rid of stuff, like really believe, it's not about getting in order to get rid of stuff, we'd have to get rid of being humans, you know? So that's uh, not going to happen as long as we're embodied. But a lot of us try a lot of different ways, drugs, food, sex, shopping, gambling. Like, there's a lot of ways that a lot of us try to uh, get away from that fact, you know, that we're human and that we have a nervous system. So although that is an extreme um, example... Um, just like it was an extreme example of my husband ending up in Vietnam around aversion. Um, on more subtle or levels or on less intense levels, that's what we're all doing in relationship to whatever it is we're carrying or is in our lives. Is practicing gratitude being grateful part of mudita? So... Um, partly because we didn't have a lot of time. I was telling somebody today or yesterday in one of our meetings that I actually think that there are um, seven Brahma Viharas. You know, there's the four that we've been working with, but then there's gratitude, generosity, and forgiveness. I think that somewhere that got dropped out. I can't imagine that Buddha didn't have something to say about those things. Um, so it's not so much that gratitude is part of mudita. Gratitude in and of itself 
is a state of grace to be in and cultivate in one's life. But the conditions of being grateful, the conditions of gratitude, set the conditions for mudita to arise. So if there's a way to move into the mudita practice, which we kind of did yesterday um, when I read the poem on gratitude and the story on generosity, was to open the heart, make the space for then the joy to rise from there. Joy doesn't rise from contraction, aversion, attachment, all of these kinds of clinging, all these kinds of ways of being. Joy arises through spaciousness, with time, through patience, through gratitude, through generosity. So that's what I would, would say in relationship. So it's not mudita. It's different from mudita. But it is a, a, it, they are connected. It is a pathway to the manifestation and cultivation of mudita. So here's this question. What were the key turning points in your own practice in integrating the practice into your life more broadly? Was it an intention, an understanding, a perspective, etc.? So I think it's, it's cumulative, you know. Um, somewhere along the line, I was clear that I was not committed to a life of suffering, you know. And sometimes when I think about that and think back, I'm thinking that it must have been an ancestral healing that was happening because I come from some people that had enough suffering um, in this country in terms of I'm African-American, so my ancestors um, somewhere along the line were enslaved. So I figure they did it, and they made the choices and the decisions that they made to continue living such that I'm here today so that I owe it to them to get it straight here. You know, to give some honor and resources to the decisions and choices that they made that allowed me to be here. So that's kind of in the background. And then as I engaged with the practice more and more and started building community, Sangha, very important, um, and started to see the effect of the practice in my life. Believe me, the life I have now is not the life I had 20 years ago in terms of the level of stress. Um, and it kind of takes on a momentum of its own such that the more freedom you experience, the more freedom you want to access. The more freedom you experience, the more freedom you want to access. And, um, you know, as an example in terms of bringing the practice into, integrating it into life, I've told some of you this over the last couple of days when in the meetings, but an example of, of how it's become integrated, how I've integrated the practice is two and a half years ago when this country changed, you know, when the politics of this country changed and um, regardless of, of what your own particular beliefs and, and um, acceptances are, there was this change in perspective and change of intention in terms of the politics of our country, which for me at the same time coalesced around and paralleled around this period of a year and a half where it seemed like every month or every other month a black male body was being murdered. So these two things were co-arising for me. And I looked out um, at these circumstances and situations and had been present to the increasing agitation that my body was holding, more specifically in relationship to what was happening with black men and some women, but the majority were were men at that time. 
And I knew that I really couldn't continue on with that degree of agitation in my body that was interfering with me living a life that was um, both um, productive in the way that I knew I could be productive um, and that that kind of anger and rage could only have de deleterious impact on me over time, maybe not right in that moment, but over time. So having had examples and having had um, the work with the practice and knowing what was, had been possible for me, I took a look to say, okay, so this is how it is. So that's the first thing. This is how it is. Like, don't wake up every morning expecting it to be different because this is how it is. That's talking about do you share it with your friends and whatnot. When people come to me and start talking about the politics and stuff, like, why are you expecting something different? It's been like this two and a half years. Um, so I, I look to see within the practice what would be useful for me in terms of assuaging that stress that was in the body. And um, as some of you have heard me say, you know, clearly metta was not the response. I wasn't feeling loving about nothing in relationship to that particular domain. And compassion, well, maybe there was a little self-compassion, maybe. Um, but certainly extending compassion to others felt very artificial and not coming from a place of um, spaciousness and clarity. And uh, joy, oh, it's almost like the opposite of joy. There's a lot of um, digging down and, and depression and anger. And uh, so then I said, well, only one left is equanimity. And I didn't have really anything on equanimity. And I didn't have a lot of experience with equanimity because as we've been saying, it's not necessarily, has not in the past been really brought forward to a large degree. But I said, okay, I'm going to take on equanimity practice. And I took it on, and it became my primary practice for a year. And um, it literally transformed my nervous system such that, and I'm a therapist. I've been a therapist for 25 years. So I was acclimated to sitting with suffering. But when it was my own suffering to that degree, I'd lost the capacity because of these co-arising things to dissipate the stress from behind it. And equanimity transformed my nervous system such that I'm able now to step in to any condition or situation. And, and not saying I don't get angry, I don't get, but it's not in a reactive triggered way. It's in a real, you know, how I, how I come to think of it is I'm not really committed to being enslaved by anything internally or externally, because people did that already. And, and, and I'm not here so that I need to do that anymore. So for each of you, you know, that's how, that's an example of how in real life, a real life situation, a real life condition, I turned to the practice and said, what aspect of the practice is going to support me in being well and is going to support me in supporting others in being well? So that's a kind of like a, a big example. But every day, even when, even when I'm at riding the train, riding the train down uh, Central Park West in the city, you know, wishing Meta for the people on the train, you know? Actually looking people in the eye, even when they're homeless. I see you. You are not invisible. You know, these little ways that we can bring forward. And every, 
extension of gender that's an extension of generosity every extension of generosity opens one up opens one's heart up um, and brings the practice even more present I guess the bottom line to what I'm saying and then see if Jill has anything to add but the bottom line is what I said before no separation between practice and life Just in terms of thinking of a, a turning point for me early in the practice, I was trying little bits of different traditions, different approaches. But something was drawing me, but none of it was quite gelling. And then I happened to be traveling to another country, and so I looked online and found out there was a 10-day retreat that I could go to, which I did. and. It was very powerful, and at the end I said, okay, this is it. This is what I want to do. And so I made plans to come back and do that same retreat in three months' time. And these particular teachers had a particular way of teaching where they taught literally word for word each retreat, identical. Or so I thought, because when I went back the second time, they, they were using this word compassion and they kept every Dharma talk they kept talking about this word compassion and I was just it was like being hit over the head by a sledgehammer I was like compassion that's what's been missing from my life that's what was missing from my family from my childhood from my community from my young adulthood and so on and I was just blown away. And so at the end of the retreat, I went to the teachers and I said, thank you so much for this new direction. You're taking the practice. And I said, what do you mean? It's the same as last time. I was like, what? No, this, all this emphasis on compassion. They said, no, we did that last time. <laughs> it was word for word, the same retreat as three months earlier. They even had a book. They had to show me the book <laughs> to prove it. So I did... I sat through that whole first retreat and I would have sworn I never heard this word compassion because it's like I didn't have the receptors in my heart and mind at that point to even take that word in, let alone the feeling of it, the experience of it. So on this second retreat three months later, something organically had shifted and then that was kind of became the orientation, the fuel, the direction gave me the momentum to to keep going with this practice because it opened up beyond just me, my small entity. It connected me to a vastness of possibility. And that's, in many ways, what's kind of been the fuel for the journey over the, these last 20 or so years. So maybe just a little more around the Brahma Viharas. There was a couple of questions um, also touching into what Dharajas shared about the difficulty of maintaining equanimity around sis, um, systems issues, social injustice, state-sanctioned aggression, the effects of corporate greed on society. Any tips, techniques for maintaining equanimity and for developing wise responses? And the second question, can either of you offer more guidance for using equanimity in visceral response to social injustice or environmental assault? 
Oh, no, I feel like I just want to keep reinforcing that equanimity is not about making us immune. It's not about getting rid of visceral responses or we want to keep our aliveness, our humanness, our responsiveness. But using the support of wisdom and the four Brahmaviharas so that it's not to our own detriment. So at times a visceral response is the natural human appropriate response. But to help us not fall into rage or despair, as Daraja said, we need the help of the other Brahmaviharas. That's why we really emphasize all four of them. So self-compassion, Kuan Yin, she who hears the cries of the world, wise compassion involves listening to our own cries so that we can know when we've had enough and when we need to replenish ourselves in whatever way we can. So as Van Jones said in the quote that I read last night, we might need to turn off the news for a while and take a break from social media and do whatever we can to grieve and to heal. And at times we might need to consciously orient to what's going well to overcome the mind's inherent negativity bias. You know, we have our own mind's inherent negativity bias, but then we have the collective negativity bias of the media that's pumping, inflaming, depressing stories at us. So to turn that off for a while and to go in the other direction and to keep bringing to mind all the inspired and inspiring people who are giving their life's energy to transforming and overcoming injustice. We might bring to mind our Dharma teachers, our ancestors, our elders in our communities, people who inspire us and really take in the, the good that they're doing and take in the good that we ourselves are doing, you know, not to overlook our own skillful qualities. So I didn't have time to talk about this aspect of mudita on this retreat, but for me a lot of it was about learning to acknowledge my own strengths and my own good qualities because we have so much tendency to fixate on what's wrong and bad and inadequate. But to be able to just feel a natural sense of connection to the full spectrum of who I am, including my strengths, is a very uh, nourishing aspect of, of mudita. And then in terms of the the hugeness of the social injustice and the environmental catastrophes. You know, if we try to take all of that in, it's overwhelming. For me, my own strategy is to try and find, well, what can I do in this moment? Where can I go? Is there anything at all in this moment that will allow me to try and alleviate that negative energy? So when... Um, certain groups of people were being banned from the US. I was in Australia, and every time I saw someone wearing a hijab, I would make an effort to connect with them, to smile if it was appropriate to have some conversation. It was no direct connection there, but in my mind it was like, what can I do in this situation, this circumstance? Anything at all. Rather than just feeling overwhelmed, look for even the tiniest 
even the most seemingly token thing you can do to help overcome that sense of powerlessness. And then the other piece is to really be realistic about what what we can do and to really take care of ourselves and to maintain alongside that activism the roots that will nourish that being in a coming from a healthy place rather than a compulsive again as Van Jones was saying the doing 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 kind of thing. So there's a quote from Thomas Merton that I often like to come back to as a reminder. He says, there's a pervasive form of contemporary violence, which is activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes the work fruitful. So in that quote I hear the need for wisdom to see where, given that I do have limited resources, where is the best place for me to funnel them? Where can I be most effective? Where can I? Um, so even on the banal level of emails, you know, I get millions, millions, hundreds of emails from different causes. And I'm going to weed that down to like maybe six that I can support and whose work I really want to value because otherwise it's too much. So, and this, you know, it's a, maybe you want to add something to this, but it's, it's a balance between noticing where and when and how we're getting flattened and allowing ourselves to re-resource so that when we do engage in activism, it has the best chance of being beneficial and not detrimental to it others or ourselves. Yeah. Um, in addition to many what many of the things that Jill just spoke to, you know, I you have to start where you are and you have to start at home. Like if things aren't right here, the ability to be effective and engaged in terms of social justice is not going to have any foundation or underpinnings. To it. Um, the other thing is, you know, the um, the real understanding. That I like that quote um, by Van Jones, and even adding to that, the understanding of that the conditions, including um, the the circumstances of uh, the uh, distress of uh, the environment and ecology, was set into motion way long time ago, way long time ago. And so we're trying to undo what was done. Um, in this country in particular, but in the world, that's way old, right? And so I'm going to talk about the United States for a moment. The United States is based on greed, aversion, and delusion. Really, those were the initial, like, let's go grab this land, like, let's go colonize these people, like, let's go. So if those were the seeds and the underpinnings, we're, we're just experiencing the fruits of that now. <laughs> 
You know, so you have to hold in mind that this has been um, intricately, intricately and um, very strongly inculcated in the culture. And so it's an undoing, as much as it is a transforming, it's an undoing because just as we've been practicing, if you don't make room for the new habits, the skillful means, the unskillful means are just sitting there waiting to jump back in. So what we've been doing in the, for ourselves individually is a same attitude to take to doing social justice work. And to really expand, uh, let me see. Yeah. Um, so just as an example, some of us lived during this time, and, and some of you were reading about it in the history books. But, um, you know, the civil rights movement, the folks that fought the civil rights movement, like they just didn't go out into the street, go out, go to Selma, go to the, the, the various places and say, Let's, we're going to protest and we're going to, uh, even Rosa Parks, we're going to, you know, break down this bus thing. Like they went into training. They went into training in order to meet the demands of what would be required of them, whether it was the dogs or the fire hoses or the police or being jailed or, you know, whatever it was that was the outcome of their social action. There are, there are um, as we speak, I'm thinking of him now, we have a colleague in England um, who was a Dharma teacher who went through the train, who teaches at IMS, who uh, teaches at Gaia House, who has made the decision for himself that the ecological crisis is so weighing on him that he has become an activist with his body and has been arrested. You know, so each of us has to really take a look. And the other thing I'll say is like, what activism looks like at 63 is not what it looked like at 25, <laughs> right? So as we move developmentally through life, you know, not weighing in that I'm not doing enough because I'm not doing it this way, but look to see, as Jill was intimating, like what's the best way to impact and have influence on social change in this time for me? And for those of you who are younger, who uh, maybe have a little more energy and a little more, not time, because some of you all are raising kids, and that's, you know, you don't have a lot of time when you're raising kids, but what, what is the most... Um, efficient use of my energy, whether it's your financial energy, your physical energy, your holding energy, whatever it is that you can contribute to whatever aspect of the cause is most um, dear to your heart and, and, and come from there. And it, you may, it may mean only engaging with your family and impacting those four people. You know, if you're a teacher, it may be that classroom that you have access to, you know. Um, whole sanghas take on adopting people in other places that they can support. So there's many, many, many different ways to manifest engagement with social justice. Yeah. All right, I'll do these two quick. <laughs> um, <laughs> Could you please give us suggestions about remembering to practice mindfulness and practicing it at home? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so there's no suggestions I can give you about remembering to be mindful.
But what I can suggest is that you engage in activity and actions that support you remembering, right? So taking the refuges every day. Like you don't have to wait until you're on retreat to take refuge. You can take refuge every morning or every time you sit down on the cushion or go to do your walking meditation. You can actually engage the precepts and live from the precepts on a all-the-time basis. It's not just when you come on retreat. You know, you can, some of you I've been talking to about this. You can listen to talks on Dharma Seed. So basically what I'm suggesting is creating the environment that reinforces remembering mindfulness and practice. Like, really? There's no way around practice. You remember when you were little and you, I don't know, taking piano lessons and my mother would say, sit down at the piano and practice. I don't want to practice. I don't know. You gotta practice, like that's that's how it works. There's no way around it. So um, that's um, uh, simple, but not so simple. Um, setting up your sitting or your or your or your uh, uh, your practice in a way that you can win at it. So if your maybe intention and goal is to have a sitting practice where eventually. You're sitting for 45 minutes or an hour a day. That's a great intention. That's a great aspiration. But if you came into this retreat not even looking at the corner where you sit down, going to set this intention of sitting for 45 minutes isn't going to really support you. So you want to look at ways that cause you to win in relationship to sustainability of practice. So it might start with five or ten minutes. Joseph, <laughs> Joseph says, just put a cushion and a, a zafu and a zavaton over there and look at it. That, like, that might be the beginning. <laughs> you know, so whatever it is that supports you in remembering to practice. Um, with one, one of the um, useful and positive outcomes of um, online and, and media stuff, it, there's a wealth of opportunities to engage. Um, I have on my phone an app called Calm that I plug into every day to listen. So there's all these kind of um, external supports that support you in remembering to do the internal work. Did you want to do any other one of yours? No? Okay. And then the last one that um, we knew we wouldn't have time to do everything, but the last one which is, a, is an interesting question. How does one find and establish a relationship with a meditation teacher to guide one's practice? So that's one of the actual um, skillful means that the Buddha spoke of or spoke to. You know, that what we do on our own is useful and good and that there are times in a practice where it's helpful to have a teacher to work with you. Somebody that comes to know your practice and you and can support you in tweaking or um, engaging with an aspect of practice that you might not even know about, much less have considered. And so, I don't know, I think Jill should also maybe um, respond to this in terms of what has happened for her, but in the beginning, um, hmm, I was involved with a teacher because the teacher identified me as someone who was exhibiting um, 
Dharma, Dharma potential. <laughs> um, and that just came from sitting with her. That just came, I, like I told you all in the beginning, I did the POC retreat every year for 10 years. So what that meant was I got to know Gina Sharp and Larry Yang, right? And Gina Sharp is actually the teacher that is responsible for me sitting here before you today um, because she identified me um, and mentored me and supported me in opportunities and engaging in such a way that I'm, I'm here today. The other way or another, so getting to know a teacher by sitting with them. Um, another way is um, by engaging with a training program, would you call it, or a Dharma study program, um, which are proliferating now. You know, Spirit Rock has three of them. IMS and BCBS are bringing into existence two within the next two years. Uh, Tanissa and Kitasaro. There's lots of proliferation of opportunity to study Dharma. Um, and by virtue of doing that, come across other teachers. In our system here um, in the US, there's not the, the system that they have in Asia for people. Um, finding a teacher and engaging, engaging with a teacher. So we're kind of creating it as we go. But it all, a lot of it comes back down to relationship, I think. Yeah, and then, I mean, the, one of the concerns that was, was put out in response to that was the two-way nature of the commitment, the benefits and the dangers. And so I know for me, one of the important things in terms of um, teachers is looking to see how they're living. Like, how are you living? Are you living the precepts? Are you living sila? Is your sila high? You know, are you an ethical person? Are you kind-hearted? Like, literally, how is the person showing up? And, you know, oh, okay, that, that's somebody I want to study with or somebody I want to engage with. So bringing your discernment to, to um, uh, what you see before you. And in this day and age, with it's, it maybe isn't the most... Um, relationally oriented way, but a lot of people, especially people, you all are fortunate in this, uh, what I've been calling the, um, I was Vancouver, Portland corridor, right? First I was saying Vancouver, Seattle, and then someone says, no, it goes all the way to Portland. <laughs> this Seattle, Portland corridor, you all have a pretty rich, you have real opportunity in relationship to the, the Dharma. It might call for getting out of the comfort zone a little bit and driving for two hours to go do a day long or, or a weekend, a non-residential or whatever. But there are many people who live in what we call Dharma deserts who don't have access to anybody, any real life people, persons um, to study with. And um, Dharma Seed is a great contribution where you can actually um, um, be in relationship with a teacher through their words and their teachings. Anything? I think that might be good for now. We have a little bit more time tomorrow. If anything's burning that needs following up, we could maybe um, address that then. I think that's an okay place to bring it to a close for now. So thank you all for your questions. Very rich.